Hi, I'm Isabel Prosper. Welcome to the First Time Moms Beyond 35 podcast. On today's episode, I spoke to Nicole, who shares an adventurous life with her husband. She exhausted all the options to have a baby, and her journey includes IVF and donor embryos. She joined a local infertility support group and learned about Foster to Adopt. Take a listen to her story. First, we can start off with you. Just tell us a little bit about you and share anything that you'd like. Um, okay, so I'm 44 years old. I became a mom through adoption through Foster to Adopt at 40. And this was while we were living in the US. I am a Canadian born in Alberta. And we moved to the Houston area for my husband's job when we were childless. So mm-hmm. he got a promotion. And he said, you can be promoted and stay here. or You can be mo- promoted and move to Houston. And I said, pack our bags. Let's go. Because <laughs> I'm always up for an adventure. Yeah. Um, and so we had already started our trying to conceive journey before leaving Canada. Mm-hmm. And we actually had uh, frozen embryos all ready to go. Um, and so the first Christmas that we were in the U.S., we flew back to Canada and did our first IVF transfer, which failed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found out while my husband was away. Um, so we're a very adventurous couple. Um, he is always ready to go for like, let's live life to the fullest and let's, mm-hmm. let's, you know, just don't say no to anything. And I think that's a huge part of our story is because I had such an incredibly supportive husband, um, which is not always the case with people who go through adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all, there's sometimes a partner who struggles with whether or not they're going to be biologically related and DNA and all that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but my husband was never that way. So he, you know, and, and I think there's part, part of our story is kind of miraculous in a way, like we probably would have never become parents had we not moved to the U S mm-hmm. um, because we even tried um, donor embryos. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we were in the U.S., we found a donor who was willing to give us her embryos mm-hmm. that we met through Facebook. Um, and yeah, so that's one of the interesting parts of our story is um, we we exhausted all options mm-hmm. of trying to conceive. Mm-hmm. Um, Over and what we period even of went, time? Was it a couple so years? It was approximately four years. Um, mm-hmm. So we started trying to conceive before we were even married. Mm-hmm. And um, it was about three and a half years while we were in the U.S. where we had the donor um, and uh, went and got a transfer in Tampa, Florida, mm-hmm. flew there. And the timing of all of that, you can imagine how stressful mm-hmm. that is. Of course. You know, doing your injections and your lining mm-hmm. um, exams in Houston and then trying to time things properly to mm-hmm, get yeah. on a plane and yeah and go do an embryo transfer in another city so mm-hmm. um but like we I said we were like well we're gonna stop by Disneyland while we're there and you know we just tried yeah. to make the most <laughs> of it um you. yeah so that's a little bit about us in, in terms of our trying to conceive journey we're both Canadian uh, we mm-hmm. lived in the U.S. for about five and a half years until we uh, adopted our daughter. And then it was very clear, well, not just by adopting her, but with COVID and sick parents and aging parents, it was very clear that we had to come home to Canada. So we moved back to Canada literally two months ago. Oh, okay. Welcome back to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, 
so you spent how many years in the U.S. then? About five and a half. Okay. So October 2015 until May 2021. Okay. And yeah. then I guess after you went through that entire experience, you must have felt like you've exhausted all your options. And then what? Um, so in, in an effort to find community, I found an infertility support group. Mm-hmm. And we would meet at the Olive Garden once a month and we would have, you know, similar faces some months and then some months it would be brand new people. But then you hear all of the challenges that other women who mm-hmm. are, you know, over 30 plus trying to mm-hmm. conceive. Um, and you just hear without surrounding myself with those voices that I probably wouldn't need, I, first of all, I wouldn't even have thought of donor embryos. I got that from that group. Even the fact that I could, you know, get somebody to basically give me their DNA, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't have to go through an agency. I didn't have to pay agency fees because there are agencies for embryos as well. Um, so finding that out from them um, mm-hmm. and trying that route and then also finding out about, you know, adoption in the U.S. and then also foster to adopt. So at the end of the day, when I say exhausted, um, mm-hmm. we were not U.S. citizens. So that canceled us out from several typical adoption agencies, you know, the ones mm-hmm. that you pay uh, a lot of money for. And then yeah. we weren't religious. So that canceled out like another third or quarter of the agencies. So we were very limited mm-hmm. to agencies that would work th- with us. And as I went down the, you know, um, typical more typical adoption route. I just, it didn't sit right with me. It didn't sit right with me um, that there were that many thousands of dollars um, being spent on, on a maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, as much as I was very open to the idea of open adoption, and I really wanted to go that route, had I gone with an agency of that sort, um, they just didn't really seem very confident that that would be the route to go. Mm-hmm. So, and again, we were so limited that it just, you know, I think that so many things in our journey just came to be because they just were meant to be. And I think that was one of them. Mm-hmm. So again, at my infertility support group, um, I met some people that were doing foster care and foster to adopt. Mm-hmm. And this is in the South, you know, you okay. and I talked about the South and how things yeah. are a little bit different with mm-hmm. families and things in the South. And, uh, you know, religious groups and just the power of numbers that there are in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, I found out about Foster to Adopt and I went and looked at three Foster to Adopt agencies and none of them sat well with me. And then um, through the magic of the Internet, obviously, because I was Googling things, this, a search mm-hmm. ad came up for um, the Foster to Adopt agency and they were having an information session one June evening. So mm-hmm. I had done my last um, embryo transfer in May that failed. Mm-hmm. And okay. so June, which was shortly thereafter, I probably didn't even grieve that yet. This came up and we went to the um, session and they said, first and foremost, thank you all for being here, but we have zero infants to adopt. So if that's what oh, you're here no. for, okay. then 
just letting you know, and you're Mm -hmm. welcome to leave. So I looked at my husband because we knew we wanted an infant between zero to two years old, having been Mm -hmm. first time parents. We didn't want to start with a Mm four-year-old or plus. I looked at him. I'm like, do you want to stay? He's like, yep, let's stay. And I was like, what? (laughs) So again, my husband just being game, right? Yeah. So we stayed through the session. And as we were driving home, it was like he had to change my mind. And he was Mm -hmm. like, no, I think we can do this. Like, let's just go to the next session and hear what they have to say. Mm -hmm. So that July, month later, we signed up to be foster to adopt parents, fully aware that the child may not stay. um, Because the the goal of foster to adopt is always family reunification. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so... Mm -hmm. You have to go into it knowing that that is ultimately the goal. And if that's the way it's meant to be, then that's the way it's meant to be. And you're, you know, you just have to let go and, and be willing to just be that safe harbor for that child for that time. Sure. Mm -hmm. So, um, we went to 40 hours of in-classroom classes. Okay. That's Um, a lot of hours. Yep. So think of four hours Mm -hmm every evening and then PowerPoints and home studies as well. Um, mm-hmm. So for two working people, that was, you know, from seven till 10 PM, um, you know, once or twice a week or one, you know, for mm-hmm. an entire month kind of thing, one night a week. So mm-hmm. it's intense, for sure. um, but they teach you about the primal wound and they teach you that adoption is ultimately about trauma that, there are families that are being torn apart through whatever forces they mm-hmm. are. But at the end of the day, it is the welfare of the child that is of utmost important for all parties that are involved. I'm so glad to hear that there's that much training involved for the there potentially is. new parents. And you so have to do necessary. consistent training every month. as you're with the child. Mm -hmm. So um, there's TBRI, which is trauma-informed. I can't even remember what it's all called, but there's the Mm -hmm. Jarvis Institute, Mm -hmm. but she is a a formal teacher on all things trauma-based care. You know, they go into how the brain works and how you have the certain cortexes of your brain that handle certain parts of your emotions and how when you're in a trauma response unbeknownst to the child, they are functioning from the back of their lizard brain. So it's called, Mm -hmm. which is their fight, flight, or fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. You know, and so it's completely irrational. And I mean, I'm probably a far better, more patient, relaxed parent because I took this training. I was going to say, I think we could all use that training. Absolutely. Like Like how equipped everyone can be you know, this is, this is great. Like most parents leave the hospital with the baby. Like I left with my husband and it's like, oh my gosh, they've released us and we really have minimal training. Right. <laughs> but this is excellent. Yeah. So you, you chose to adopt and you were blessed with a five month old baby, right? She yes. was five when you got her. Okay. She was five months old. And we don't say when we got her, we say she was five months old when she came to us. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, and so you're raising her on your own. Nope. Me and my husband. Yep. Just the, just the three of us okay. because our, fa- our whole family is in Canada. Oh, oh, so you're still in Houston now. 
No, we, we moved back, but while we oh, got yeah. when we got her, we were in oh, Katy, right. which is a uh-huh. suburb of Houston. So it was just the three of us, and we got she came to us on the 9th of November. So we just mm-hmm. went into the Thanksgiving weekend. Mm-hmm. So my husband was able to take like four weeks off. So we had we just Amazing. totally bubbled in Amazing. our house with the three of us, and she was the happiest, chill like baby. Ever. Like even to this day, she's so smiley and happy and barely cries. Um, And we just so fortunate. Yeah. And she's fortunate too. We just totally bonded and it was, it was incredible. And I was self-employed. So I took six months off from my Canadian employer so that I could be with her for those six months. So Mm -hmm. we got some good quality time. Excellent. Now, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the, Talk a little bit more about her because I know that she's of another race. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about any challenges you faced with that? Like, how did it, how did that, how did you find out that she was going to be another race? Like what was happening with that when you were um, in that process of potentially bringing her home? So when you become a foster to adopt parent, you have to give them a criteria as to what you are willing to bring into your home. Are you willing mm-hmm. to do, you know, Hispanic, Latina, Polish, Russian, mm-hmm. Czechoslovakian, whatever. And we said, race doesn't matter to us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely did not matter. Um, and and we kind of gave them our, our age group, which would be ideal. However, we would be willing to go so that when they get children that come into care, they kind of have a little bit of a bucket of a list of who the potential people foster parents could be so when they got the call about her again really interesting um I literally sent an email to the adoption agency that morning and I said you know I just don't think that you know how open we are to all of the options because Mm. we haven't gotten a call and she said well since you sent us that email this morning we have this infant who has come into care and this Mm -hmm. is her story and would you be open Um, and so we heard her story. We get a little bit of a background in terms Mm -hmm. of what's going on, why she came into care. Mm -hmm. Um, and for, unfortunately for her, she was in a hospital with a skull fracture. So there had been an incident in her uh, kinship placement and she was in the hospital. So Mm -hmm. she was in need of care, but we also knew that there was a head injury involved Mm -hmm. and and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, but being us, we said, yep, bring her on over. It was 12 o'clock in the afternoon. My husband was three hours away in Lake Charles at a mm-hmm. job site. Yeah. And I called him and he had to drive all the way back. And I went to the Target and I got all the diapers and everything. And awesome. she came to us at about 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. And so we... We in the foster care community that we had built in the time that we had been studying and, and, and in the infertility support groups, what I loved about where we lived was it was very diverse. There were mm-hmm. people of all colors, all races, all mixes, all different kinds of families. You had Caucasian husband, mm-hmm. African-American wife, like there was, you know, so I, I thought that we could mirror the mm-hmm. difference of families around us. Right. I, I felt that that wouldn't be a challenge, especially mm-hmm. based on the community that we had. You know, we had other foster to adopt parents that were multiracial families as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came to learn and study a lot. And of course, in 2020, everything that went on with regards to 
the political stuff oh, going yeah. on mm-hmm. and, you know, George Floyd mm-hmm. and the, you know, justice that was being, you know, mm-hmm. shaken for people. And I, I got to be a sponge and learn about all of it. And, Good. and I was a little bit taken aback because in Canada, we don't have the depths of institutionalized racism that they do mm-hmm. in the U S I, I t- truly believe that the U S is a, a bit of a unique situation in terms of its history that has not been told. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I became a sponge and I just kept studying and listening to podcasts and, and listening to black voices so that mm-hmm. I could understand my child's history Mm-hmm. And the history of her country and the history of her race, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll never know it all. Um, and I obviously have a white lens that mm-hmm. I cannot break out of, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, but I am determined to understand and be an ally and, and just figure it all out and do it in a way that is thoughtful and open-hearted and Good. caring and empathetic mm-hmm. um, and not not asking people to teach me, but rather trying to learn on my own. Oh my gosh. You're awesome. <laughs> yeah. I can, I, everything that you said is, uh, shows me that you are extremely aware and open to learning. Yeah. Have you watched the show? Uh, this is us. I have. Yes. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say that's my favorite show actually. Yes. And, Randy's uh, story is very interesting. Yeah. Yes, yes, especially mm-hmm. in this most recent season, mm-hmm. where, as you're saying, like the the writers obviously they they decided to make the script uh, to identify some of the racial you know tension, mm-hmm. um, and then looking at Randall's Randall's perspective as a youth, you know what he went through and so on, which was never mm-hmm. discussed. So I mean, the fact that you're you're a mom that's raising a black child, um, you're you're pretty much. And needing to be aware and conscious of what some of her needs or experiences that she may go through as she's going to school, et cetera. Absolutely. And Absolutely. to be able to admit that you may not, uh, you may not really, you're seeing the white lens is what I can say. Mm-hmm. To admit, admit that is remarkable. Yeah. Some people can't admit it. They don't, they don't see color. They say they don't see color, but we are, I believe we all have to see color and in order to see color, that's how we can learn about each other. Like we're, you, you should never be colorblind. We should see color. Absolutely. That's what I believe. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. It's, I liken it to those that claim to be colorblind. Mm-hmm. I liken it to male versus female and, and mm-hmm. the inequities that happen. If, mm-hmm. if you can't see color, then at least use that as your litmus test mm-hmm. to have some form of empathy and a right. little bit of understanding of the right. dichotomy and the yeah. injustice and the, yes. the differences just yeah. between the two races. Yeah. And if you can mingle that and go deeper Mm-hmm. Then, then you can figure it out real quick. And it gives me goosebumps when I, you know, when I just think about everything that minorities have gone through yeah, in, yeah. in a white dominant culture. Right. Now I have to ask, is your husband um, Caucasian or your husband is of another race? He's Caucasian, third generation indigenous. Oh, so okay. as a Canadian, he has some indigenous bloodlines. 
Absolutely. So there's that aspect in yeah, cool. the Canadian culture of yeah, yes. the racial dichotomy. Yes. I mean, there's a lot coming out about, um, you know, First Nations throughout Canada and a lot of uh, untold stories. So, yes. Oh, that's, that's cool. Um, and just bringing that. it back to This Is Us, Angela Tucker, who did, who was an adoptee, a black adoptee in a white family, she actually was a consultant on the writing of the script with regards Yay. to Randall's adoption. And she oh, has a podcast that. called okay. The Adoptee Next Door, okay. which um, I definitely recommend um, to mm-hmm. anybody who's considering mm-hmm. adopting or especially adopting That's transracially. It. It's uh-huh. a really good resource. Um, oh, thank you for being, sharing that. That's good. Being a mother of a transracial adoption, you have to hear all sides of the voices. Yes. And sometimes it's really hard to listen to because some of the voices and the platforms that they have, they have very challenging positions on adoption. Mm-hmm. And they don't always put adoptive parents into a good light. And you've got to mm-hmm. take it. You have to have a bit of a tough skin. That's right. That's yeah. so true. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let me ask you, Nicole, um, um, for motherhood, uh, are there any frustrations that you're experiencing? Um, and tell us how you manage those frustrations. Um, finding my tribe was difficult, right? I did not fit into the stay at home mom tribe or even those who gave birth to their children, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I think mothers experience loneliness regardless because it's just such an overwhelming time. Mm -hmm. Uh, but for me being a working mom, being an entrepreneur and being a transracial adoptive family, like I just, I didn't have a tribe. Mm -hmm. So I made it. I, I, went on Facebook into mom's groups and I tried to make a working mom's group and I tried to make a, um, you know, adopting adoption book club. And I I tried all those things, you know, to try and build community. And I, and I definitely did end up building some, nothing really ended up sticking because, and we Mm -hmm. moved back, but so that was a frustration, just trying Mm -hmm. to find your people. Um, and then I guess the other frustration is just, all the information that I learned about trauma-informed parenting, mm-hmm. it didn't land with any of my other mom friends. Like, they're just like, well, you know, well, I do this and I rule with a rule fist and I blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I can't do that with my kid. Mm-hmm. Like, I just can't. So that was a little bit isolating and frustrating for me because they just yeah. didn't get it. And then what did you do in that sense? Or you just let things be? Um... I guess I just took what I needed from their advice and I just didn't, I didn't try to change their hearts and minds about the way I was going to parent and the way that I had to parent my unique child. Mm -hmm. It's no different than a parent who has a child who has a disability or autism Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, they have to sort of, everybody has an opinion about how you should raise your kid, whether they're Mm -hmm. normal or not, Mm -hmm. or quote unquote normal. Yeah. Um, And parent as a mom, you just have to take what advice resonates with you and just let right. go of the rest and don't try yeah. to change other people's hearts and minds. hundred percent on board with that because if we listen to everybody, we're not going to be consistent in our parenting. And then that's just horrible for our child. And the, the, the parents, you're, you know, what's best for your little girl. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or not think- necessarily what's best, but what works for me and what works for our family. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So 
I'll that's never what claim I to you know what's best, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll know what works for that's us. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't listen to the woman who has the village mm-hmm. when you don't have one. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. <laughs> You're or never don't get, don't get be on the same ad- page. Or don't get marriage advice from someone who's never been married. Like yeah. that kind of concept. Yeah. Totally. Um, so I have one last thing I want to ask you um, before you let us know how people can connect with you. What do you think every first time mom beyond the age of 35 or anyone trying to conceive um, that plans to be a parent, what should they know about being a, um, a parent at the advanced maternal age? Um, that your wisdom of age is actually going to serve you. Mm-hmm. You are not going to care about the outfits that your kid has on the way you mm-hmm. would if you were 22 and 25 and you hadn't mm-hmm. really figured out who you were yet. Mm-hmm. So embrace your age as wisdom. Yay. Um, yes. Yeah, I think that is probably it. And just make sure to take care of yourself in whatever way you can. If you struggle with your mental health, get help. Mm-hmm. If you struggle with eating and food, get help because mm-hmm. you're going to be tired. You're going to be mm-hmm. so tired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just don't but have the energy that you have when yeah. you're in your 20s, yeah. in your late 30s and early 40s. Yeah. So true. Tell us how people can connect with you. Is it with Instagram or Facebook? Um, yeah, there, I just, or, or I'm on my personal, I am my personal Instagram where I share a lot about, you know, being a transracial adoption family. Um, I'm at Hey Nicole Bray on Instagram. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's great. Well, listen, you um, are such a light and thank you for sharing your adventurous journey with us, which, which um, in the end has turned out to one of the most beautiful experiences I think a couple can have. I hope this helps someone today. The First Time Moms Beyond 35 podcast is here to help you connect with another motherhood journey. If you'd like to reach Nicole, you can find her information in the detailed description for this episode. And as always, you can reach me by email at isabel at motherhoodafter35.com and on Instagram at firsttimemomsbeyond35. Thank you for your support. First Time Moms Beyond 35, we got this. <laughs>